Hello everyone and welcome to AgriFood Matters, the podcast from the UCD School of Agriculture and Food Science that aims to shed light on the topics that really matter in the world of agriculture and food. I'm Sean Duke and I'll be your host for this episode, episode 10 in our series. First, let's head over to Judy Dowsett, the co-producer of this podcast. Uh, Let's hear from Judy now about what we have lined up for our listeners today. Well, Sean, you don't need me to tell you that COVID-19 has been ruling our lives for the past couple of years, which has meant that we're more aware than ever of our immune system. Um, And vitamin D has an essential role in immune health. And so it's been receiving a lot of attention. And especially because so many people in Ireland have insufficient levels of the vitamin. But guess what? It turns out that many Irish cows have low levels of vitamin D too, especially during the winter months, which potentially has a lot of knock-on effects, not just for their health, but for that of their young as well. So today we're going to hear from two researchers in the School of Agriculture and Food Science here in UCD with an interest in vitamin D, Um, one from the animal perspective and the other from the human perspective. So firstly, we'll hear from Kieran Mead. Dr. Kieran Mead is an animal immunologist and he was telling me that 60% of infectious diseases originate in animals. And so there's a significant drive to discover ways in which animals can be bred, fed or treated to bolster their immune system and reduce their need for antibiotics. Currently, about 100 tonnes of antibiotics are used in food producing animals every year. So the development of these new interventions, such as vitamin D supplementation, have the potential to reap significant benefits. And then we'll be hearing about the human side of things from Afric O'Sullivan. Dr O'Sullivan is a nutrition lecturer in UCD and she is going to answer all of our questions on vitamin D. What do we need it for? Why are so many people in Ireland at risk of vitamin D deficiency? And interestingly, are there some groups in society who are especially at risk um, of vitamin D deficiency and what can we do about it? So it's a really nice subject today, Sean, which spans the interest of researchers in UCD, which is what I always find so interesting, um, all the way through from animal health and the links that it has with human health. So I really hope that you enjoy it. Thanks, Sean. That was Judy Dowsett there setting the scene for us. Thanks, Judy. Let's hear first now from Kieran Mead, who is investigating how the deficiency in vitamin D discovered in Irish cattle is impacting the animal's immune systems. I began by asking him how his interest was initially sparked in pursuing a career as an animal immunology researcher. Yes, Sean, so originally um, I wanted to be a veterinary surgeon, so didn't get the points in my leaving cert, so I decided to do animal science in UCD, but actually really liked the degree as I did it, and was always interested in kind of infection biology and the role that diseases played, um, and didn't know too much about the immune system at the time. But I started to do a PhD in UCD on tuberculosis in cattle, and during that process we developed, we, uh, developed a lot of data and um, we obviously needed to interpret that data. So the data was on the immune response. So I, I started to work with a professor of immunology called Keno Farrelly, who a lot of people have heard of. 
and she uh, we together we started to really understand the immune response to TB in cattle in more detail. So an immunologist is really stu somebody who studies the immune system. And uh, from then till now, I've been studying the immune system in multiple different livestock species from chickens to cows. Yeah, and of course, the immune system is not that much different, I would imagine, between animals and humans, is it? No, there are some important differences, but I, I think what's really interesting is a lot of the developments in immunology were based on discoveries made in animals to begin with. So, you know, a lot of people would have heard about the B cell, for example, making all these antibodies that we're currently producing after our COVID vaccine. But that those B cells were originally discovered in a, a little organ called the bursa in chickens. So that led the, the, the discovery of that of the, of the bursa in chickens originally got the Nobel Prize for that discovery. So animals have always been, you know, played a huge contribution in terms of our discovery and they're used to this day in terms of understanding the immune response better. But um, but over the course of evolution, obviously, animals have um, diverged from humans. There's uh, important differences between us. And we need to, you know, if we're talking about designing vaccines for the future, for example, we need to understand what those differences between species are. Yeah. Now, I did science in UCD years ago in the 80s, and it was very much, you, you did science, and that was different from VET. They're all in their different little uh, silos, if you like. But I think that might be breaking down a little bit at this stage, and there might be, uh, like this concept that you hear of One Health, where they bring people like yourself, and they're linked in with people doing research on, say, human immunology and human uh, aspects of science. So what's that, and how does it relate to your research? Yeah, well, I think the, the first point there before we get to One Health, the first point is really, you know, when I when we engaged with at the end, when I generated data on bovine tuberculosis, for example, in UCD, we brought in Joe Keane, who was a professor of uh, TB from St James's Hospital. We brought in Clino Farrelly, and we had all these human specialists and animal specialists in the same room talking about the same disease or a very similar disease because the organism that causes diseases in cattle is very similar to the organism that causes tuberculosis in humans. So. You know, even though we didn't use the term at the time, we now know that that was kind of a one health meeting because, you know, we had all these people who are working on similar things, but in different species in the same room working together. So one health really is all about partnership. And there's three pillars to that partnership. There's the animal side, the human side and the environment. So a, a simple example would be, you know, if we were to able to reduce disease in humans, then we're using less antibiotics, which ultimately would end up in the environment in some way, shape or form. So we're protecting the environment, cutting our use of antibiotics, and we're also improving the safety of, of our food and preventing the dissemination of disease into humans. So by protecting those three pillars, the human, the animal and the environment, we're taking a one health approach. Yeah, because it seems to me, like just from the outside, that nearly the, the animal work is nearly the front line in all of this, say with COVID, because that's where it started in the animal or, uh, you know, the, the antibiotic story. I mean, that, that's in animals and uh, it's, it translates then into humans. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of like the front line. We, they have to be connected, don't they, to be effective? Yeah, no, that's what a big, a big uh, central thesis in my research is really controlling infections at source, where they begin. And though that could be in, in bat populations, it could be in wildlife, other wildlife populations, it could be in livestock. But, um, you know, well, I think that's a very important point that um, our expertise in human immunology, as you've known from all the podcasts and the talking you've done over the years, 
is 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 well expanded and well developed. We have a, an international reputation in human immunology, but the number of people working at the coal face in animal infection biology is is a lot smaller. You know, so this is really a major growth area because, as we say, you know, focusing on on in, on controlling infections at source will prevent that disease ever getting to humans in the first place. Yeah. So getting on to vitamin D, you've got a special interest in that, I believe. And how does that uh, relate to uh, humans and how does it relate to cattle? Yeah, so I was always, um, I, my, my central research uh, approach is, to, is working on what are called host defense peptides. So these are, these are natural antibiotics that we all make, humans and animals, and we secrete them right across our body surfaces. And they have huge potential in terms of being alternatives to antibiotics. So if we could learn how to turn them on, we could make an animal that's theoretically more resistant to infection, right? So we discovered a, a, a lot of these new genes in cattle, but we still never knew what turned them on. So um, we started to think about vitamin D because vitamin D is known to activate some of these host defense peptides in humans and mice. But So I started to talk or ask around people, I, I worked in Chagas at the time, and I asked some nutritionists, uh, nutritionists about vitamin D, and they were explaining that, you know, when we supplement our diets in cattle with vitamin D, and our animals tend to be outside a lot of the time, so there probably won't be an issue with vitamin D. But the more I dug, the more I realized that actually there hasn't been any empirical data on vitamin D concentrations in cattle. So I developed a collaboration with a, a professor in the University of Florida, and um, we, we set up assays to measure vitamin D in cattle for the first time. And really, my interest has just grown from that day because the levels in Irish cattle are actually turn out to be really low, particularly at times of the year, like in the winter, when animals are removed from direct um, sunshine, when the sunshine levels are low, and also because the animals are housed. So we've actually done a a number of analyses around uh, looking at spring-born dairy calves, looking at, and we all know from in Irish agriculture, the transition cow is under a lot of pressure because she's calving and she's trying to also produce milk in that in that spring time of the year. So our results have shown us that actually spring, spring calving cows are very low in vitamin D. So this, we think, has important implications for the development of the immune system in the calf, for the development of their microbiome, and for the ability of the postpartum cow to fight infections. However, we don't really know how much vitamin D a cow needs. So this is part of our ongoing investigations, and this was what led to this kind of One Health approach to vitamin D. It's a very good example of One Health because we take our guidance from the literature that's already more developed, and that literature is in humans. So the human literature will tell us, they, the human literature has identified a concentration that they think is um, required for optimal immune function. And when we relate that back to cattle, originally vets would have ha, have set the um, optimal concentrations of vitamin D in animal diets on the basis of, of clinical deficiency. So they would have seen, say, rickets or poor development of bones, and they would have set that deficiency way before we ever knew the important role that vitamin D plays in the immune system. So, yeah. so we're now taking those concentrations from the human literature, and when we apply them to the animal literature, which is not a perfect science, but it's, it's, it gives us somewhere to start, we can identify that animals are, are either insufficient, as in they don't have optimal levels of vitamin D, or they are deficient in vitamin D, and that's going to lead to a lot of problems down the road. That's fascinating. So our, our cattle are a bit like ourselves then. I mean, here in Ireland, it's no little surprise when you think of it that they would be deficient, given that we are. Yeah, yeah. So about 30% of adults, I think, are, are thought to be deficient in particular regions in Ireland. So, um, so we started to look in um, mainly in, in TB-infected cattle, because um, traditionally, 
back with with TB patients, those TB patients would have been wheeled out into the sun by medical doctors at the time to uh, try and improve the cure rate for tuberculosis. And it wasn't until much, much later that they learned it was because due to vitamin D. So we were able to show in our lab that vitamin D improves the killing of um, the, the, the bacteria that causes TB in cattle. And, um, and we think it has important implications for their ability to, to mount an immune response. So that's some of the, um, some of the studies that are currently ongoing in our lab. That's, that's fascinating, Kieran. So way back in the 50s, uh, I think it was, you know, when it was at the height, the TB thing, uh, there's places like Piedmont near where I grew up and you would see that they had these sanatoriums and they put them outside. And I always wondered, what was the reason that they yeah. put them out? Yeah. So that, that, did they know at the time? No, no. So they didn't know at the time it was down to down to vitamin D. So vitamin, D, I mean, it makes sense, really, doesn't it, from a from an evolutionary point of view? If you think that you've like we in agriculture, particularly, we have modified the environment of animals hugely, right? So you know, since the advent of agriculture, we now have animals in much closer proximity to each other because the cattle have been domesticated. In in Western agriculture, we now put our animals indoors. We've moved into more northern latitudes, so the animals aren't getting enough as much sun. And then we do things like we, you know, our calves. We put jackets on the calves in the springtime to keep them warm. And obviously, I'm not advocating that we don't use those jackets. They're very important from a welfare point of view. But what I'm saying is those management practices have not knock-on consequences. So if the animal's skin is less exposed to vitamin D, well then, or less sorry, less exposed to the sun, well then those animals are going to make less vitamin D. Vitamin D could be a very cheap way to improve the health of animals and reduce our use of antibiotics because it's not expensive to supplement with vitamin D, you know. And that, and that of course, is going to benefit us ultimately as well. Yeah, that's it. You were listening there to animal immunologist Kieran Mead. Now, the One Health concept, which holds that animal and human health are inextricably linked, has driven more links between animal and human researchers in recent years. That's also the case when it comes to research into vitamin D, where Kieran Mead, who we just heard from there, has forged links with our next speaker, Professor Africo Sullivan, a human nutrition researcher at the UCD Institute of Food and Health. I began by asking Afric how the research links on vitamin D between herself and Kieran Mead were initially forged. So I suppose uniquely, actually, nutrition research um, and education is centered within the the School of Agriculture and Food Science in UCD. So that's quite different to to many other universities in that nutrition will often be connected with public health or with um, medicine even. So we're in a unique position in that um, we're working on animals and humans within the same school. And I suppose, um, I can't remember how the conversation started initially, but I got chatting to Kieran, who works with animals and vitamin D, and he looks at immune health in particular. And we were chatting about our research and we're doing very similar things. Just he works with animals. I work with humans. So there's a lot of similarities and connections and things that we can compare across um, the two research programs. And then you've got that other connection in that we consume animal meats and that is a source of vitamin D in, in our diets. And so what Kieran was talking about was seeing low levels of vitamin D in, in, in animals in Ireland. And obviously we see low levels of vitamin D in humans. And we have that connection that if, if we're consuming meats, it is one's food source. And therefore we don't want the food source to be also low if we're trying to improve intake levels. So there's a couple of different ways of looking at the, the kind of interconnections and I suppose that's 
kind of what the, the One Health approach to research is all about. I mean, we're getting some vitamin D from meat then. You know, there's some, um, is there by looking at this closely, could we increase the levels in meat or other parts of our kind of traditional diet? Yeah, we could potentially do that. Um, we could look at increasing concentrations in meat through increasing the intakes that the, the animals have. And there has been some research actually looking at increasing the vitamin D content of eggs. And that has been done quite successfully by feeding hens um, vitamin D. So there's ways to improve. It's called biofortification. We actually had people talking about that in, in the workshop um, uh, that we hosted there a couple of weeks ago. So biofortifying kind of natural food sources of vitamin D. And then the alternative is looking at the kind of food fortification for things like milk and bread, where we can just add more vitamin D to those sorts of foods. And I suppose that kind of brings, come, brings me more to, to my research because if we're adding vitamin D to those foods where we don't not naturally see high concentrations, we need to look and see, well, if we add the vitamin D, is it going to get absorbed or is there something we need to do to the structure of the food to help the absorption of that? And that, that's what we're working on in UCD in, in kind of food science and nutrition. Yeah, because if you eat the meat and you're not meant to get the vitamin D from meat, then you mightn't absorb it. Is that the kind of thing? Well, we're looking at, well, basically, how could we improve the absorption of it? And to do that, we need to look at, well, how does vitamin D get absorbed firstly? And we know that more vitamin D is absorbed when you consume it with other fats in your diet. So, for example, if you were taking a, a vitamin D supplement, I'd be telling you, well, have it when you're having your dinner, because you're more likely to be consuming fat with your dinner. And then you're more likely to absorb more of the vitamin D from the supplement if it's in that kind of fatty mix, essentially, because that's the way it gets across your intestine and then circulates. So we're looking at kind of what is the structure of the food and what are the components of the food that would help us to absorb more of the vitamin D that's in it? And then how can we design foods around that, essentially? So all the time focused on improving if we improve absorption we potentially improve vitamin D levels and then therefore the vitamin D status of the person or the population. Yeah. Like could you have, for example, just I'm thinking maybe a vitamin D fortified milk or something like that. that... Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what we'd be looking at. So with the vitamin D fortified milk and these do exist already, they are on the shelf. And, but in in a, a recent study that we were doing in UCD, we looked at changing the actual fat that we add um, when we give it in that milk drink format. So we kind of mirrored the composition of, of your standard cow's milk. But we, instead of, instead of it being a dairy fat, we used olive oil. Um, and then we also used a coconut oil as another uh, form of fat. And uh, colleagues, so Dolores O'Riordan and Graham O'Neill, looked at essentially making a micelle and a micelle is, is a kind of a fat structure that gets absorbed so so when we eat fat we, we form these little balls of fat that get absorbed across the intestinal cell wall so they made those in the lab and incorporated vitamin d and so we tested that as well and so essentially what we we're trying to do is to look and see if we manipulate the fat component of the milk can we get better absorption and is it the equivalent of taking a standard supplement. So if we took a high dose supplement, can we do the same using a food? And essentially we were able to show that we were. Um, so 
changing the kind of fat component of the food had an impact on absorption. And then the other important kind of result from that research, um, which is something that we know, but we really need to figure out how we can kind of make the most of it, um, is that people who have low vitamin D levels respond much better in terms of supplementation or, or kind of increased consumption of vitamin D. So those who are kind of worst off tend to increase most. So it was in those where we really saw differences and uh, when we gave the fortified food or vitamin D supplement at the time. Yeah. So maybe kind of try and identify if we're having a national strategy, you'd, you'd try and identify the people at risk that are particularly deficient and then maybe, uh, you know, give them the, the products, the vitamin D fortified products. That, that, that's pretty much it. And it comes back to another another area of research that I do a lot of work in. And it's that kind of targeted or personalized. There's a lot of different names or words that are used to describe it, but essentially kind of a personalized approach to nutrition recommendations or food recommendations. And so for some people, they're going to need that kind of higher dose fortified food. For others, they might not need that higher dose fortified food year round. Um, they might need a, a slightly lower dose um, and then higher doses in wintertime, for example. But it's it's looking at that kind of in more detail and trying to learn, you know, kind of who how can we identify those people that are at risk? Um, and then how do we start to make that more of um, a kind of a, a national policy, I suppose? How do we target subgroups of the population with these types of recommendations? Yeah, maybe through the GP or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Listen, thank you very much. It's it's fascinating research, and uh, we wish you well with it in twenty twenty two, and uh, have a great year. Brilliant. Thanks a million, Sean. Thank you. That was Africa O'Sullivan, human nutrition researcher at UCD. Well, that's all for this episode of Agri Food Matters, the tenth episode in our series. I hope you enjoyed it and the rest of our series so far. If you'd like to get in touch with us or to make suggestions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please email me, Sean Duke, presenter of AgriFood Matters at seancduke at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it or review it on the iTunes podcast platform, which is very helpful for us here, or any of the other podcast listening platforms on which it's available, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts and Radio Public. Thank you for listening and until we meet here again next time, it's goodbye from all of us here at AgriFood Matters.